On this episode, I'm speaking with Mike Whaling, founder and operator of 30 Lines and creator of the RentPress apartment marketing platform. It was an honor to dive into this conversation with Mike. Mike is considered by many the godfather of multifamily marketing. I certainly think of Mike in that regard. I've gotten to know Mike quite a bit over the last year or so. I haven't known him long, but what I do know about Mike is that he imparts knowledge every time you speak with him. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation, learn a little bit more about his background, get a history lesson from Mike, maybe a crazy story or two. It's a fun conversation. Without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Whaling. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Uh, well, you know how the format works, as you said at the at the top here before we got started. And I always love to start with where you came from. Were you born on a farm? Were you born in the middle of the city, downtown downtown Manhattan? You know where does where does Mike come from? And what I what little I know, it's that you had a quintessential Midwest upbringing. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. I'm certainly closer to the farm than I am to Manhattan. That's that's, that's for sure. Um, I grew up probably oh, a little bit more than 30 minutes outside of Cleveland. Um, so, you know, it's one of those where I would say I'm from Cleveland, but I'm not actually from Cleveland. I'm from a tiny little town of like 3000 people. Um, you know, when I was growing up, there was one stoplight. I think there's two now. And our high school was in the middle of a cornfield. So um, that was that was my upbringing. My mom and dad were both educators. My, my mom was an elementary school teacher and my dad was a, a principal in elementary school. Um, so I definitely come at this at, at everything that I think about from that, that like educator perspective. Mm. Um, and I think it's really set me up for, you know, just lifelong learning. Um, and how I approach everything and, you know, the things that we're working on in the business and things that I, you know, um, that I'm trying to do personally. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's where, uh, where all of this started for me was, yeah. um, North, Northeast Ohio. Did you, did you consider yourself, you know, like a, like a farm guy or like a, a rural guy, or did you always think of yourself as more of a, a city slicker, like even as the, as a young buck? Uh, you know, I mean, I played, I played baseball. I played a little bit of soccer. Like I said, our high school was not that big. Um, but I never really thought of myself as like country. Um, you know, we definitely, you know, family went to the county fair and stuff, but I was not the the 4-H kid. I was the guy that uh, I loved it when we got to drive down and do the park and ride on the rapid transit and go downtown to watch a baseball game or, you know, go, go see the Indians lose, which they did most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, back in the, you know, I was, I was rough back in the eighties before their new stadium. Um, we'd go downtown for, you know, the, the Christmas festivities. And then they opened up a big downtown mall in Cleveland. And, you know, I've, I've always been drawn to um, not just the architecture, but the energy of us, of the city. And um, you know, Cleveland's, turned into a pretty cool place to be. And, um, you know, there are a lot of other cities that I just, you know, anytime I go to New York, I just, you know, can't get enough of the energy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love the, the, the busyness of so many people and so many things to do and so many different perspectives. Um, it's always been mm. really cool for me. And as a kid, you were, uh, to allude to some of the, the future steps in your life, you were always into building things. And there was something about Christmas morning, um, a little bit like an anecdotal sidebar that you mentioned <laughs> to me that I thought was pretty cool. Um, now that I have a, a kid of my own and obviously you have a family as well. Um, tell us about what you were like, kind of like Christmas morning around the tree. What was that? What was that all about? I was always the, the, the one in the family that people just handed me the stuff to build it. Right. So uh, it was like, here's this thing that needs assembled, whether it's a bike or my sister's Barbie dream house or, you know, any of the things that I, that I got that I had to put together. I was always the one that, you know, sat there and figured things out, um, you know, building the, the, the furniture. Uh, we didn't have Ikea around when I was growing up, but, you know, since, since then I'm, I'm the one that built yeah. the, the furniture and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I was always the one like, here you go. Mike's going to build it. Um, and you know, there was 
it was, I was always trying to figure things out. I wasn't necessarily the person that was like disassembling the toaster, the washing machine and putting it back together. But, um, I wanted, I, I wanted to figure things out and figure out like, how did they work and, and how did, how, yeah. how did the different pieces fit together? Yeah. I'm with you right there. I mean, I, I'm not taking apart appliances either, but I love, um, and it's funny, it, it's such a juxtaposition with my wife because I would love to get the giant bag of bolts and washers and screws, lay them all out and know exactly what I need to do to build this thing. And that's like a nightmare for her, but it sounds like for you, it's, it, it's kind of along the same lines. Like you, you're into that. You want to know how things work. Uh, that's really cool. And, and that extended also into brands, like actual brands that you were buying, that you were seeing out in the world. And as a kid, you were noticing those things and you even started, you, you told me you were, um, drawing them out and kind of carrying graph paper around so you could recreate those, those brands and those iconic symbols. Um, where, yeah. did, where did that come from? I have no idea. I don't know where it came from. I mean, it's just something that I picked up, right? Like, but I would sit in study hall and sit in class, you know, probably junior high on. And I, I, I learned that the graph paper let me get a little more detailed and let me really understand like the curvature of things. But, you know, I'd sit there and um, I remember kind of vividly that like our school had IBM clocks. And so I wanted to get the exact font type uh, font you know the, the typeface of the ibm letters yeah. um you know a big one that, that we talked about before was just you know the curvature of the nike swoosh and just trying to get that exactly right with you know there's two different curves and they're both a little bit different and you have to get the width the right way and and if you don't the swoosh doesn't look right and uh, yeah. i spent i spent so much time with with that kind of thing of like trying to really uh, be able to replicate just, you know, freehand what I was looking at. And, um, you know, it got to the point where I got really into cartoons and like the process of animation. I did a, I did a whole like independent study project at one point on Warner brothers and everything related to Warner brothers and got into like the, the, um, you know, the, the transparent sheets and like, how did they actually oh, yeah. do animation back in the yeah. 1940s? Um, I had some friends that that saw what I was doing with that and asked for for drawings, and so I started a, a tiny little side hustle at school of just making drawings for people of like Bugs Bunny and Marvin the Martian and the the different Warner Brothers characters because people wanted to throw it in their locker, and uh, and I could make a couple bucks off of it. Yeah, Th this is funny. I mean, it's 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 so unique. Um, and not funny in like a ha ha way, but funny in what comes next, because you ended up going to school for civil engineering, I believe. And you kind of were thinking like architecture, design, something like that. Yep. Um, but this story, I kind of want to let you run with it because when I first heard it, I was a little bit floored to be honest, cause I've never heard a story like this, uh, <laughs> with a guest on this podcast. It's definitely not not your run of the mill story for uh, going to school and figuring out what I'm doing. Um, yeah. So, so let me just set this up. Okay. So you're at school, you're going to, uh, you're, you're going into what you think is architecture design, something like that. But then you end up pivoting after about a year and a half into something completely different. And, and tell us, tell us what that is and how you found yourself in that amazing story it, yeah for sure so uh i did i started going to school for civil architect civil engineering i thought i was going to be an architect you know go back to the buildings i was like i've always had that interest in buildings so i was like yeah that's that seems pretty interesting um and we'll you know full circle to where we are now we'll get to that in a bit but um going to school and i pretty quickly realized that i was not cut out to be a civil engineer not really what i wanted to do but in the meantime you know you're living in the dorm uh, had, had made some good friends uh, where, you know, we, we really bonded around music. Um, I had a couple of buddies that we went every single week to the local record exchange and we'd drop 20 bucks or 30 bucks or something like that. And we'd come home with stacks of CDs between, between two or three of us, we probably had, you know, I don't know, six or 8,000 CDs of, you know, singles Oof. and just random wow. stuff and remixes yeah. and all those kinds of things, just binders of, of CDs. So we get to the end of the year and my freshman year and uh, 
we were like, we want to throw a party. It's the end of the year. We just want to throw end of the year celebration. Gotta throw a party. Let's do a party. Gotta throw a party, right? Yeah. And so we went to the we went to the administration. We asked them if we could do this, and they said they said yes. I'm I'm not sure why. Um, probably because there wasn't. I don't think there was any alcohol there on campus. Um, but my buddies and I got together and we daisy chained all of our stereos together, and created this like outdoor dance floor. And we connected, we didn't even have like faders or any kind of mixers or anything like that. We like just connected all of our different amps and, and CD systems and built this like completely rigged uh, DJ setup. And, and we ran the party. We did the music for the party and we, apparently we were good um, because <laughs> they asked uh, the school then asked us, they, you know, uh, the next fall, they had all their RAs come back, you know, a couple of weeks early for their RA training. And they asked me to do the party for like celebrating the RAs at the end of the end of the year. So I started like, that was basically the, the beginning of my college business. And as I'm trying to figure out like, all right, I'm going to transition from civil engineering into, there was never anything where I was like going to quit school. I, I flipped over to business and communication, um, but started doing these, these parties as, as a college DJ. Um, we had a, I had a friend of mine who was in a fraternity, knew what I was doing. And he asked me if I could DJ a party for him at a local nightclub downtown. They had rented out the club for the night and they wanted me to come to the party. So I was like, all right, sure. We'll do it. Um, so at this, at this point it was me and, and one other guy that were, we were doing the DJ thing. We go to the party, the club owner comes up to us in the middle of middle of our set. And he says, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a college night. Would you guys be interested in helping us out? <laughs> like, sure. I mean, I'm maybe 19 at the time. And, uh, you know, we talked to him we, and he was open to our ideas. So we said, yeah, we'll do it. But you have to have a great drink special and you have to make sure that, the, you know, you're downtown and you're 15 minutes away from campus. And these kids have to be able to get here and get home and, you know, ideally do it safely. Um, and so he put together Thursday, Thursday night college nights for us with dollar pitchers of whatever their draft <laughs> beer was. And a party bus that ran every half hour from nine until three a.m. Wow! And that was that was it. That started it. So between, that was the turning point. Yes. Yeah. So we started doing that, and by the time I was a junior, senior in college, um, my partner and I had 15, 15 people working for us, um, all doing DJs. We had eight different sets of music. Uh, we had our own equipment. We rented equipment. We were, you know, every week between Wednesday and Sunday nights, we were doing anywhere between 15 and 20 events from different, we were running three of the biggest clubs in, in town at the, at the time. And we were doing the frat parties and the high school proms and the, the, the weddings and all of the different things that you do as a DJ. Um, and that was life. Like, College was definitely around, working around our our job and our business at that point. Yeah. Um, so you know we had uh, we, it was we, you know business was it's called Sound Solutions. As and, it would, uh, yes. And and that was our that was my college gig. That was there was really what I did in college, and then you know just went to classes around that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. So you, um, not to toot your own horn for you, but you told me that you were making six figures as a side hustle, as a college student, kind of like doing the first gig, doing a few more gigs. And then suddenly you have this DJ full blown DJ business doing mini gigs 
all the time. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And um, you know, we like, we literally were running a business, right? My, my partner was doing all the operations and, and, you know, scheduling guys and making sure that, that, um, we had people covered. Um, you know, we had at the time, like we ended up, do you remember next telephones with the little walkie talkies? Oh yeah. Um, we ended up getting like sets of those so that everybody who was out on jobs could communicate really easily with the, with the walkie talkies. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, it was as, as legit as it could be at the time in like, you know, the, the late nineties. Yeah. Does anyone else remember $1 pictures by the way? Wow. Right? I think, I think it was like one or $2 pictures when I was in college as well. And it was probably natural light or something like that. Oh you yeah. Know as oh, close yeah. to water, water as possible, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, yes. um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing story. And so you, you know, this was a real business, like you said, and so you had to make a decision. Do I want to continue to do this after school? Do I move on to something else? How did you, cause obviously you've moved on to something else at this point. How did you sort of part ways with that, that phase of like DJ Mike life? Yeah, I, I knew I did not want to be the wedding singer. I didn't want to be my age now and still DJing. So um, I ended up, a uh, partner and I got together and we negotiated, he bought out my shares and I, and I, and I moved on from there. I still you know, came out of retirement a couple of times to, you know, go do some parties at the, when I was, when I was a lot younger, but um, you know, but I sold, sold those shares and uh, you know, I was really trying to figure out like what I was going to do and um, started right out of school actually in finance started in mutual funds and, and insurance and worked for an independent brokerage and really learned a lot about personal finance and um, did a little bit of, of like health insurance and benefits in that area. Mm. And just, you know, just learned a ton about, about how to think about money. Um, I wasn't any good at it. I was, I was not good at it at all because, you know, when you're, you know, 24 years old, 23 years old, nobody that you know has any money to invest. So, um, you know, we were smiling and dialing for businesses and cold calling people and, you know, trying to get my, my dad's friends to invest in annuities and things like that. And, uh, and I wasn't any good. Um, it's, you know, it's something that uh, I, I look back at and go, man, I'm glad I did it because I learned a ton. Um, even though it wasn't a good fit for me, yeah. but, um, you know, I was within, uh, you know, probably a year or two, I kind of knew that that was not a good fit. So I started looking around for, for something else. And that's really when I jumped into, into technology. And you, you landed in technology, uh, via Orlando, I think it was, uh, Mm -hmm. took a trip, took a trip down South, dove into the Orlando scene. And I think you told me it was a satellite, a satellite internet company. Um, yeah that you initially started working for, but things didn't really go exactly as planned. However, this really was the time, uh, a time that became a really, a really quite pivotal, pivotal moment for you. When you kind of look back on everything, um, what was that, what was that chapter? Like it wasn't a, a super long chapter, but I think it was important enough that you, um, you know, when we, we've talked a few times about just kind of putting a pin in that time, because it was, it was really important. And there was a specific, um, individual during that time as well. I think that really kind of nudged you in the right direction. Well, you know, it's interesting with the satellite internet stuff at like, it wasn't a viable business at the time. And I know the technology has gotten a lot better, but one of the things like that was a really important lesson for me about, about brand, everything that they were doing with the satellite internet, they were trying to white label it and let resellers brand it however they wanted. And what we, what I learned, and we'll talk, you know, this translate this to now for like apartment branding and property brand versus centralized parent brand. Um, there wasn't one brand that people could trust. So all of these little rural mom and pop resellers were spinning up their own versions of, of our service, but they were doing it under their own brand and nobody knew the brands, nobody trusted Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I thought like looking back at that now was really obvious to me that we needed some, we needed brand credibility. We needed a parent brand, you know, like, like 
Dish Network or like DirecTV, people know those names and they they have some sense of what they are and they have some sense that I could probably trust DirecTV. Um, we didn't have that. And yeah. we, you know, we really looked at, could we push that? Could we switch it to a parent brand, something that we could make more trustworthy to the consumer? And um, it wasn't possible. It wasn't a good, wasn't, wasn't a great business. And uh, I saw that pretty quickly. So uh, I started looking around for another opportunity, uh, you know, quickly, shortly after I left that business actually ended up going under. Um, but uh, I landed at a place called Infinisys, Infinisys Electronic Architects, um, guy named Richard Holtz lived in Daytona beach and he was an electrical engineer by trade and his business was in what's called low voltage technology in multifamily. So what we did is we had a team of engineers and a team of, of, of drafters and we would work with developers and with student housing builders and we would design all of the technology on the property. So security systems and cameras and uh, door gates and uh, Wi-Fi and, you know, talk about dish network. We would do like the master dishes, um, yeah. put those on the roof so that everybody moved in and they all got like bulk cable service. Um, and then Richard's part was he negotiated the deals. So if you're familiar with, um, you know, a company like Realtycom today, uh, we were doing a lot of that where we were negotiating the deals with Verizon for put fiber in the building or Comcast or uh, any of those, you know, any of those operators. And then we were negotiating the, the bulk cable, bulk, in, bulk internet. And then we were actually designing the network from the street all the way to the wall plate of what do those systems look like? Um, and, and got into all the technology too. Right? Like the smart home technology at the time was like iPod docking stations in the wall, which looking back, that was a, that was a, a short lived idea, but people at the time it was an wanted idea. it. It was yeah. an idea. And, um, and that was really my first exposure to multifamily was, was through Infinisys and through Richard and, and his business and all of his, all of his yeah. connections. I, I really love part of this, this specific chapter of your story, because it, it touches on something that I was doing around the same time as well, which was figuring out how to use and leverage the internet and building products on the internet. And really what that came down to at the time was how do I use HTML? How do I use CSS, which by the way, was a brand new thing then. How do totally. I use tools like Dreamweaver? Um, I can't remember if we were talking about front page, like there was just all these new tools popping up. And at the time it was the wild west and you were, you were diving headfirst into that stuff as well. You were understanding what the term social media meant back then. Yeah. Uh, blogger, websites, SEO, all these like buzzwords that, you know, mean quite a bit today that, you know, you think about, you know, 2006 ish, you know, what do these things actually mean back then? But you're, your hands in the dirt, you're figuring it out and you're trying to plant some seeds back then. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, besides going to conferences, my marketing budget was zero. So, you know, I'm, I'm charged with sales and biz dev for, for Richard's firm and, um, you know, we're going to NMHC Optech, we're going to NAA, we're going to the, to the, you know, the, the, the core conferences at the time, but I didn't have any marketing budget beyond that. Um, but I also recognized Richard and his expertise and, and, and the subject matter and, you know, really learned a lot about thought leadership, um, and learned about how do we take that thought leadership and transfer it online through all of these new channels. Right. And to your point, like, I, I was not, I'm not the technical guy by trade uh, or, you know, by, by formal training, but I had to figure out how do we spin up a website and a website that I can edit and started with Dreamweaver and eventually found Blogger and, and, you know, and then WordPress, um, but had to figure out what are we going to do and how are we going to make a name for ourselves and how are we going to um, be found and be discovered uh, through search and through social media and through all of these other channels that were starting to pop up. Um, you know, Twitter, Twitter was, you know, just, just starting. And, uh, that ended up, you know, I, we have, I have friends to this day that I connected with on Twitter 14 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. My, uh, my, my co-founder at authentic 
we actually connected through Twitter. That's a, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know that, but, but we originally connected because we were both on this platform early days, just a couple of, uh, designer developer types. I mean, I'm sure it's, we, I mean, I think the likelihood of us actually crossing paths on Twitter in those days was probably fairly high. I, I might've even seen some of your stuff back in the day. I mean, the, the community of designers and developers back then felt pretty small on that platform, which is, yeah. uh, which says a lot about how, how far that, that platform's, uh, gone today. But, um, yeah, let me, I don't want to rush through that piece, but I want to talk about something that happened around 2008. Cause you were, you were learning all these tools. You were kind of, you know, the gears were turning, the gears were grinding, you know, yeah. things were starting to happen and you were moonlighting a bit on the side because not only were you learning about development and what multifamily was and kind of what your place could potentially be in the industry. Um, you were starting to think about your own thing. And at the time, uh, 30 lines hadn't yet formally been, you know, launched and it wasn't this big thing. You didn't have swag or anything like that. Um, but you were, you were thinking about it. And, and before we get into that, that story, I want to pause and ask what is, what is 30 lines? Where did that come from? Because I, <laughs> I never knew it before I asked you and I, and I want the others to hear it. Cause I think it's really, uh, really cool. Can you, can you enlighten us about that? Yeah, for sure. So 30 lines started, I mean, I knew it was going to be a business, but it started as a journal. It started as my, my blog for ways to communicate some of the ideas that I was thinking about some things that I was seeing, but, um, 30 lines. So a couple, couple things went into, and I'm sure you put a ton of thought into how you named your firm. For me, there were some things that were really important. One, I wanted a short, unique name, a short, unique available URL. Um, I didn't want anything that had rent or lease in it um, because at the time I wasn't doing only multifamily work. We were working with some other clients in other industries. So I wanted something that was a little unique. And I was looking around and I was trying to figure out um, where we were going to go with it. And I found this piece of research that said that you and I and everybody else in 2008 um, were super impatient when we're searching for information and no one goes past the third page of Google in their search. It was like 95% of us will never go past the third page of Google. So if you look at Google at the time, it was 10, page, 10 links per page, 10 blue links. So you've got 30 links or 30 lines of content uh, to get your, get your brand and get your message in front of the customer. Yeah. Uh, I joke all the time that if I was going to rename the company today, it'd have to be like five lines yeah. because oh. <laughs> that just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. But, um, you know, I think it, it goes back to right message for the right people in the right place. Yeah. I love that. I love that a lot. I, we, we definitely joked that <clears throat> if it was going to be today, it'd be like three lines. You think about yeah. like, you know, tweets and, and LinkedIn posts these days, but, um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, talk yeah. to us about the early days of 30 lines. I mean, did you, did you jump right into building platforms and changing the world one website at a time or like, what was the, cause you transitioned, you're kind of getting like an education trial by fire for the, for the previous year or two, just being oh, introduced totally. to, to multifamily. So what were those early years like? Um, it was, it was really, more, uh, it was a lot of communicating what I was seeing and what I was learning and also trying to learn my, the, uh, my clients' businesses as, as quickly as I could. Um, with what we were seeing and really the whole, the whole thing was I, I saw really early on where SEO and social media were going to go. And, you know, it's really just how we use the internet today. But at the time it was definitely like, here's SEO and here's social media over here. And, we were hearing a lot about it at, at industry conferences. Um, I remember one conference, there was a CEO of a read on stage and he was talking about all of our residents are on MySpace. You know, like residents are on MySpace. We need to be there. Um, our team is putting all these resources into it. Here's this lease up that we have. And we got all these leases off of MySpace. And, um, you know, I'm the guy in the back of the room with the laptop. And I, I pull up the Latin MySpace page for the property that he's talking about. And uh, it was like classic blingy background. And there's like an autoplay Jay-Z video in the corner. And, nice. you know, they've got their top eight friends. And I think Tom was one of them. But it was one of those things where um, 
I just saw really quickly that there was an opportunity for education of what does good look like and what does good look like mm. in terms of how can we be thinking about where are these things going and what does that mean for multifamily and for, for, for yeah. apartment marketing? So like I said, 30 lines really started as me journaling some of those thoughts and, and sharing ideas, sharing, here's something you could try that kind of thing. And um, within the first couple months, I had somebody who reached out to me, um, probably, you know, a guy who's, he owns a small portfolio in suburbs of Detroit reached out and he said, Hey, I've been reading your stuff. I like it. Makes sense. I want you to come do this stuff for me. And Mm. that's when 30 lines officially started as a business. Cool. So if we go back to the Wayback machine and we search for 30 lines on MySpace, are we going to find a blingy background MySpace profile for you in the early days? There is, um, there is, there is a profile there. I couldn't (laughs) tell you what it looks like anymore, but there is a profile there for sure. Fair enough. So there, there, may, there might be an Easter egg out there for somebody who tries hard enough to find it, but, uh, That's right. That's we right. won't, we won't, we won't talk anymore about that. Um, <laughs> so, so, so first client out of Detroit, really cool. Um, what were you doing for them? Were you, were you doing obviously some social media stuff, but like, I feel like this is the time when you were kind of like figuring out what 30 lines yeah. was going to be as a, as an agency or as a company or as a, as a product development company. Um, what, what did those early, you know, client interactions, client projects look like for you? A little bit of everything. I mean, we were mostly content. We were mostly SEO, definitely some social media, but there was also just some things things in there that like, you know, I I think from day one, I've I've always looked at where is the customer and what is the customer doing? Where Mm -hmm. is their attention focused? And how do we make sure that we have a presence there? And, and so, you know, early on, we were doing SEO, we were helping with websites, we were doing the social media, but it, I was also doing things like coding custom Craigslist HTML templates, yeah. because at the time they still allowed that stuff. And so we, we could create the custom templates that allowed for additional tracking and allowed for some design. And, um, you know, that was, that was fantastic. Um, gave me a really op- early opportunity even to, to learn about like split testing and, you know, let's, let's test out some different headlines on Craigslist and see what works, what, what captures people's attention, those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I, I was really doing a lot of different stuff just to, to see what stuck and to see what needs of our clients I could help to, to fill. Yeah. And I don't want to do too many callbacks, but, um, there's a, there are a few, horns lined up here. So I'm going to toot a different horn for you here and bring up this, you know, you, you're underselling it a little bit because you were doing quite a bit in social media in a way that other groups were not. And so you actually landed on, uh, you had your client land on a Forbes list at the time for, uh, social media. What, what was that for specifically? I mean, I will tell you, I am, I, I, forever grateful for having clients who are willing to try crazy ideas. And, um, you know, in this case, he was especially willing to try some crazy stuff. And we built some really nice, some really nice case studies and uh, got some attention. uh, And we landed on a list of, he was named actually one of four social media innovators um, in the country next to Ford Motor Company. So we had mm. Ford Motor Company, a couple of other names that they named as innovators. And then my my client with his little, you know, four or 500 unit apartment community. Um, and, and, you know, Ford selected us, had, had, you know, did a whole profile on him, uh, wrote him up. And it was all because of, you know, just the fact that he was willing to try some crazy ideas and, uh, and a lot of them worked. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I mean, obviously, as the listeners can tell, you have a very thoughtful approach to the work that you do. You have a, a very calm demeanor. And I think that that helps quite a bit when you're when you're speaking to your partners, when you're sharing and educating an audience. And you actually had an opportunity to do that uh, fairly early on. And I think that a, a colleague of yours gave you that opportunity uh, to speak at a conference and kind of talk about some of these things that you were uncovering in the space. Yeah. Can you recall that moment and, and what it meant for 
you personally, but also as, uh, you know, as the representative of, of 30 lines? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so we built enough of a name that my client was asked, asked by the AIM conference. You know, this was after Steve Lefkowitz bought the conference and, uh, you know, he was, he asked our client to come give a case study at the last minute. My client wasn't able to go. So Steve calls me up and he says, Hey, can, can you come give the presentation? Um, we normally don't, you know, I don't, I don't love having vendors come up and give their pitch, but so you have to, you know, be thoughtful about that. We just want you to present the case study. And um, I'm, you know, so, so grateful for the opportunity because I had the, you know, I had the opportunity to, to be on stage very early on at AIM, present the things that we were doing. And I remember vividly that like people didn't believe it. They didn't believe what we were doing. They didn't believe the numbers. They didn't believe the results. Todd Catler from Anyone Home, he was in the back of the room and he was questioning the numbers that we were sharing. And like, I'm, I'm sure that if I had a conversation with him today, like he would still tease me about it. But, um, you know, uh, it was just one of those moments where that really kind of put us on the map at the time because people saw that we were innovative. People saw that we were willing to try things that nobody else was doing. And um, it really kind of set the tone for the types of clients that we've had the opportunity to work with since then. Mm. And I think one of the things that you mentioned to me, which I, which I felt is a brilliant way to approach innovation in the multifamily is to look outside of multifamily and see what other industries are doing. And one of the areas, or I should say one of the industries that you pointed to was the kind of the restaurant industry and how, how the restaurant space at the time was really doing email marketing in a way that other industries weren't yet latched onto. And, you know, we're talking about nurture campaigns, um, uh, guest, uh, nurturing, or in this case, new resident nurturing. Um, is that something that you have done from the start kind of pulled ideas from other industries into the work you're doing, or is that more of an early aha moment that kind of set the stage for, for the, the growth of 30 lines over the years? Put the DJ hat back on. I'm constantly remixing. It's <laughs> like, like one of the things that I do all of the time is just look at what is this interesting thing that's happening over here, kind of regardless of industry remix it and then ask the question like what would that look like in multifamily and there are so many good examples from from retail from restaurants from hospitality uh from from travel there's so many interesting things out there and you know i'm not the first person to say it i'm not the only one to say it but like those are the experiences that's the bar that we have to meet as marketers is the experience you know, you're used to a certain level of experience based on the Starbucks app or going into a Nike store or doing business with South Southwest Airlines or whoever it is. That level of experience is what people come to expect, uh, regardless of that, who they're doing business with. So you're not being judged on how do you compare to your comps? You're being judged on how does how does my experience with you compare to what I think should be the the bar? Mm. based on how I do business with Amazon and how I do business with all these other brands that are in my life. And I think that that's something that has, has certainly caught on a lot more, but it took a while for us to get there as an industry to go, okay, yeah, we need to, we need to be on the same level as, as all of these other brands that people interact with on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think some of the ideas that we were riffing on when we've had, a, had the opportunity to connect in the past, you know, um, we were using websites as an example. And one of the things you brought up was what happens if we just make our corporate websites at the highest levels searchable so people can get to what they're looking for right away without being told that they need to go, you know, down this link path, X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Um, and one of the things that you brought up too was what if we ask prospects for their contact information before we show them any property information at all? Yep. Um, where does that, where, so that, I, that to me falls under the remix, uh, line of thinking that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really needed in the multifamily space. Um, what, what does that mean in your, in your mind from a nurturing perspective, if, if more groups start doing like doing it that way, thinking like that and kind of remixing what they've done from a marketing and kind of lead gen lead nurturing perspective. 
it's it it puts you in a completely different position in terms of when you can reach the customer and the types of information that you can present to the customer to help them find an apartment with you. Um, and I'll, I'll let me explain what I mean. Yeah. If if you think about the average, you know, we've done years of study on this now of looking at customer behavior, and some of it's uh, a lot of it's our data, some of it's third party, but you know, hardly anybody starts looking for an apartment with a property in mind. Most people are starting with location and price first, and then they go from there. They have other criteria that they have to have to pick pick off, but hardly anybody starts with this is the property that I'm looking for. Mm. Um, in a lot of cases, what we see is they're not actually looking for you by name until they're almost two thirds of the way through the process because they have all this other research that they have to do first before they get to, okay, yeah, now I'm going to go search for you by name. So what we want to do is position our clients to, instead of waiting until that person is two thirds of the way through their process, how do I get in front of that customer earlier in the process what does that need to look like? What content do I need to have in place? And then what do I say to them? So if we look at, you know, early, early on, if I'm looking for apartments in Colorado Springs, what's going to show up first? Typically, it's going to be ILSs. Yeah. Why? ILSs have all the options. Google knows that if I'm looking for apartments in, in Colorado Springs, that person doesn't know what they want yet. They're looking for options. So the best answer to that question is the sites that show all the options. So I'm never going to rank if I am trying to compete with an individual property website. I do have a good shot of ranking if I have a regional page that shows, hey, we have 10 communities in the, in the Colorado Springs area and we have something for everybody. Take a look at what we have to offer. <clears throat> yeah. Search hundreds of apartments in, in our, across our portfolio. That's a much better answer and it gives you a better opportunity to show to, to show what you have to offer much earlier on in the process. So that page is going to rank way before any individual yeah. property website. Now you have to go, okay, I, I got that traffic. How do I capture that person's information so that I can start to nurture them? Because it's, you know, even then that person's still not ready for, I want a tour, I want to, I want to apply they have a little bit of homework that they want to do or some questions that you have to answer. So now that's where we start looking at, okay, how can we inject ourselves in a helpful way? And you mentioned it, you know, one of the things that we've tested is right at the very, at the beginning of the search, if they're looking for two bedroom apartment, here's my budget, just put a field there. That's an optional, give us your email, give us a comment, tell us what you're looking for. 32% of the people in our tests will give you their contact information before they've even looked at a single property. Mm. So now, you know, two bedroom, here's my budget. Here's my contact info. doesn't matter what they do after that. You can start nurturing them and you can yeah. start sending them very personalized, very specific personalized follow-up messages that are absolutely tailored to what you know that they want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love to hear it. I, I think this is something that we could talk about for, for a long time. And, and even when I, think back to some of the the events this year some of the conferences with with the biggest of groups on stage talking about you know marketing and 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 uh, renter journey i think renter journey the journey of that customer was actually a really big topic this year and it's as if some of the biggest groups are just now finally waking up to you know what you know empathizing with the position of a renter in that journey that you're you know that you were just speaking to and it's surprising to me and, and sort of interesting that that hasn't been the focus from the start but it's just now becoming something that's in the spotlight and it's uh it's really fun and fascinating to hear you talk about it because it's something that you've been doing for for a very long time if if, if listeners have followed you for any time at all it's something that you're very passionate about and, and that really and is a good one, segue, one thing segue. i want to and chris i want to yeah. stop you right there we have to, we have to continue as, you know, when I say we, I talk about like my clients our, our clients, operators need to continue to push the vendors in the industry to help with that. Because we still, as much as we're pushing on customer journey, there's still half of it that's missing mm. that we can't see. And we have no visibility into and don't really know what to do with. And, you know, that starts with the ILSs. 
because we don't have visibility into what is the customer doing when they're on the ILSs. Are they look, are they viewing our listings? Can I grab that data and start to remarket after they've viewed my listing on, on Zillow or apartments.com? That data does not exist today, or at least it's not available to the vast majority of us. Yeah. And if you are really serious about the customer journey and want to understand it, then we need some help from more partners. Um, yeah. and, that, and that goes, and that doesn't, that's not just the ILSs. It's all the way through websites. It's through self-touring companies and partners. It's through all of the, um, the tour schedulers and the, the, the email assistants and all of the things that we're looking at in terms of what a modern MarTech stack looks like. If we really want to understand that, we have to do a lot more to, to work together there for sure. Yeah. Let, let's, um, I wanted to chat about RentPress really quickly, but let's actually first talk about third-party cookie changes that are coming because I think it ties in, dovetails nicely to this conversation um, in that you know people that come and go from websites these days, they're not necessarily going to be able to be tracked in the way that they are today forever. In fact, you know Google keeps bumping back their uh, elimination right. date for third-party cookies, but at some point, you know, big changes are coming and arguably... Uh, no matter who you are, if you're not prepared for those changes, then you could be really far behind, uh, really far behind in terms of tracking and understanding the data that you speak of. Um, yeah. How are you looking at tracking, quote unquote, at this point when it comes to cookies, when it comes to renters and their behavior expected or not? Like, what are you thinking about? What are you preparing for? Because uh, I think that would be really helpful for some of the listeners. So... I actually think that this doesn't impact our industry as much as it impacts other industries um, because we don't do a whole lot of um, relying on third-party networks to go out and programmatically run ads. I mean, there's certainly some, some operators that are doing that today and yeah. that part of their business and that part of their media mix are going to be affected, but we are just not as ne nearly as affected as, as other industries like consumer goods and, and, you know, a, a few other industries. So um, I don't mean, I don't say that to downplay it, but I think that we're actually in a better position than most industries when it comes to this, this specifically. There's definitely ways like, you know, Google Analytics, that's first party data. They're using first party cookies. There's, there's ways that you can set up a lot uh, in terms of like server side analytics so that it all is first party data. And you mm -hmm. don't have to worry about that from, or at least you have it at that point. Um, the biggest thing that we're advising to our clients though, is just get smarter about how you're collecting and using zero party and first party data. So what's the, what, what's the data that customers are giving you just through their behavior? And then what are the other ways that we can create more opportunities for them to share information? Mm -hmm. and, and there's all kinds of different ways that you can do that through content, through pop-ups, through different opt-ins, like, there's all, all, a lot of different approaches that you can take, but that example that I just gave you about asking for the email and the search, mm -hmm. that's a direct attack on, right. you know, I want that first party data earlier in the process. So now I can then personalize and nurture right. and I have permission to market, you know, go way back to, to Seth Godin, permission-based marketing, right? Exactly. Um, what are the things that I can do to go, Hey, I'm, are you interested in receiving price alerts? for what you told me i'll share you I'll, I'll share with you all of the two bedroom apartments that we have available that that makes sense all you have to do is opt in for it now all of a sudden that's your data that's your customer that's your opportunity to build a relationship and you don't have to worry about the third-party data yeah. stuff yeah you know we talk about it all the time but this idea of brand experience isn't just in the way a brand is designed or the way that a property feels once you're there on site walking through i mean it's it's really the, I say little things, but it's big stuff, right? Like it's, it's how you're asking your potential renters to engage with you, even on the website, giving them the opportunity to be as frictionless as possible, sharing their information back to you, giving, getting that permission from them, right. To get back to them about something and then actually follow through with what you're saying that you'll do. I think that's really important. It's a, it's a part of a, a very complicated, cycle certainly a complicated journey but i think one that as some of this cookie stuff changes in the coming years and in these these martech stacks get more and more complicated arguably 
dumbing it down and making it simple and starting, you know, kind of keep it simple, stupid. I, I always, I still love that yep. is really going to be the foundation for a lot of this, this stuff and a lot of, a lot of success for a lot of groups. Um, I, I, I want to go back of that. Sorry. Yeah. Just, just to close yeah. that thought for you. Um, the second piece of that is more important for our industry than the first part, the seamless experience, because as, as more prop tech comes available, as the, the marketing stack continues to evolve and get more sophisticated and have more pieces to it, mm-hmm. it gets really important that you're, that you're really thoughtful about how does the website work with the chat bot, work with the pop-up, work with the accessibility tool, work with the survey tool, work with the email assistant, work with our, our resident app, work with the self-guided tour thing that you have to do when you get to the property. All of that is part of the customer experience. And, and in their mind, yeah. it should feel consistent. It should feel connected. It, it should feel, it should not feel disjointed. And so we have to really do a lot of work to go, how do we make sure that all those pieces fit and make sense to yeah. the customer? Yeah. The, what just popped into my head was if you think about you know, going to early food markets, when food markets became a thing, like mixed use spaces, and you walked in and you felt like, okay, I'm in a building and there are 10 different food vendors that have nothing to do with each other and everything feels disjointed and separate. And okay, I'm at a food hall, I guess, or I'm at, I'm at this food market. And, and as that idea has evolved over the years, you now walk into these beautifully curated spaces where there's a lot of different options, but everything feels cohesive. Everything's designed together, even though those 10 vendors are potentially completely separate from one another, it all feels like the same experience. And, and I feel like what you're saying is, is very synonymous with that, with that thought. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's hit on rent press because I don't want to get through a podcast with with Mike Whaling and not talk about what this thing is. So rent press, you're you are either thirty lines or rent press or or both. I think it's it's a great opportunity to explain to the listeners what rent press is, where it came from, and kind of what what it purpose it serves across the industry today. Yeah, for sure. So uh, and I appreciate you you uh, giving some space for it. Yeah, um, rent press is really just the evolution of of where, where we've come. So, you know, from content, social media, SEO, we started taking care of websites for, for clients. And, uh, you know, we saw pretty early on, like we, like everybody else, you have to do it. Um, we, we need pricing and availability, seamless experience. Let's make sure that we're delivering what the customers want. We want to make sure that we pull in pricing and availability, and we want to make sure that we collect and deliver a lead to wherever the client needs it to go. Um, we we were building that over and over again and it just got to the point where you know we saw hey this is this is silly but why don't we build one system that we can replicate and and tie in whatever integration that we need so yeah. we basically took the the e-commerce engine to show floor plans and show units and show pricing we extracted that from our websites and we turned that into its own plugin and that's that's really where Rentpress started. Was we 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 have that e-commerce engine that anybody can use to to drop onto an apartment website, um, specifically for WordPress, and um, they can create that e-commerce. They can create that that connectivity, and then we've built in all the integrations on the back end with the CRMs. So somebody can tell you they can they can search all of your availability. They can see real time pricing. They can see the revenue management lease term options. Select exactly what they want. All of that gets passed through in the in the form directly to to the to the CRM. So, for the customer, again, go back to seamless experience. It's all in one page. There's no iframes. There's no pop-ups or extra windows. And for the marketer, they have full visibility into where did that person come from? What did they do? Where did they convert? And you know, if your CRM has the capabilities, now you have all the all the data to go. How many times did they hit our website before they actually converted? Um, so it's, it's much better for the customer and it's better for the marketer. Um, we, we package that now and we have other agencies that are using it. So I have, um, probably about 20 right now, uh, other design agencies that are using RentPress as their e-commerce engine. So they're building custom mm-hmm. websites. They're building beautiful websites. Um, everything from single properties all the way up to corporate portfolios with 300 properties or more. And, um, they're building they're building out the site and we're handling all of those integrations as a service for them. Um, 
we've also we've, we've since evolved that so we then took all of the resyncing and all of the integrations we pulled that out of the website and we put that on its own separate web app and that is now rentpress so now we have those integrations centralized and you know we have data going back and forth it's kind of the grand central station or the kind of the zapier of mm. of information so we pull everything in and we can get that you know once we have the the, the data we can then push it out to your website or to your chat bot or to your email um, we've done some stuff with remarketing audiences, which is really cool. And uh, we're continuing to build out those, 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 those modules and those endpoints of where we can put that information for people. I love it. I love it. You're always innovating. You're always thinking about the future. You're always doing the remix. And I think that is absolutely something that is here to stay in, in multifamily. Let's talk about that, the future of multifamily. I feel like you and I have these like little quick opportunities to riff you know, here and there on ideas and themes. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we talked about, um, recently was you, you kind of felt like your superpower all along has been, I can look at something, I can have a decent idea of what it is and what's going to look like in a few years, but you're not necessarily doing the thing that's going to change right now. Um, well, what are you seeing today is the big question. What am I seeing today? I mean, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that our, that we, I see so much embracing of innovation and embracing of different ways of, of trying things out. Um, I think that that's, that's really encouraging, but, you know, I think that we have a long way to go in terms of um, customer experience. Um, mm. And there's a number of different pieces there. One is making it easier for people to get into and out of the application. Um, I think there's a lot of room for innovation between connecting online and offline. And we're, we're doing some pretty cool yeah. work around that. Um, and then I think that, you know, as, as these CRMs really evolve, I think there's a ton of room for um, how we use them and how we really use them as, as true CRMs, right? Like not just lead management and, and then here's a resident. Now it's what are all of the things that you do with it? Not because you have this relationship and you know the name of their pet and you know their, their birthday and you know, how many, how many maintenance tickets they've, they've submitted and all of those kinds of things. You know what actions they've taken that have earned, <clears throat> earned them loyalty points in your system. There's a lot of cool things there. But you know, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that you and I talked about before is I think we have to make it easier for people to uh, apply for apartments. Like that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's an easy one for me that is a pain point for, for, for a lot of renters. And, um, you know, go back to the remixing. There's there's already there's already uh, precedent for it in in e-commerce. There's already precedent for it in, in lots of other places, and it's just a matter of taking some of those ideas and applying them to yeah. um, making it really easy for people to kind of save their information. I've heard other people talk about like a renter passport before, and um, I think there are some some elegant ways to execute that while still making sure that operators can collect their, their application fees. Yeah. I, I think that this idea of where is multifamily headed next, we've talked about two prongs more or less under that umbrella, uh, you and I, and that and one of them is sort of like, Hey, what am I seeing out there in other industries? What are other industries doing really well that we could bring into the space? And then the other prong is what are literal business ideas that other entrepreneurs could take today, run yep. with and have a really viable business in two years? One of the, I have an example for both that I think that you could speak to well as we begin to wrap up here, but on the, on the Marriott example, you're talking about how is it that I can go to a Marriott, go to the bar, have everything put on my card and I have a seamless checkout. Why isn't that available in multifamily and, and why are there six apps to, to do the same thing? Can you, can you speak to that at all and kind of like what's needed there in multifamily? Uh, I mean, I, I actually think that we're making some progress towards it, but yeah, I mean, just the idea of like, I can go to the rest, I can go to the, the restaurant or the bar at the hotel and I can, I can put it on my room. And then when I check out the next day, I can see that exact charge and it's all there and it all goes to the same place. Right. So kind of that idea of um, put it on my rent. Like, I think that that is a really exactly. compelling idea and something that, you know, in terms of making it more convenient for renters, that's something that a lot of people would be really interested in. And as you, and as you look at like the impulsifies of the world, 
and some of these like little self-serve markets and bodegas and, and other things that, that, that um, we're doing and introducing, I think it becomes really interesting to say, how do we, you know, or, or even like, you know, house cleaners or dry cleaners or any of these other ancillary services, we're still really relying and really heavily leaning on third parties to, to manage that stuff yeah. for us. And, and to your point, the resident has to go to some other third party app to do it when right. really all of that should be in the resident portal, resident application. Here's, you know, this is the service that I need. I want to have my dog walked, put it on my rent. 100%. Done. Yeah, 100%. Quick shout out to uh, to Janine at Impulsify, by the way. Funny, funny story is I met with Janine probably 10 years ago, back when my business was really had nothing to do with real estate. But uh, wonderful woman, had a great idea. It was a seed of an idea back then. And it's been so fun watching her journey in the, in the, in the hospitality and sort of not, yep. not entirely multifamily space, but I mean, she's doing some really cool stuff that people are paying attention to. So, uh, shout out to a fellow, fellow Denverite in Colorado and on, on that one, nice. um, awesome. as we, as we wrap up, one of the things that we have fun talking about is, uh, for the eager entrepreneurs listening, what needs to be built in the industry that doesn't exist today. You already alluded to this universal renters passport program app, whatever that is. Um, does anything else come to mind as something who's lis- somebody who's listening can say, okay, let me jot that down. And, and maybe he'll be kind of like the, he or she will be the first person to do X, Y, or Z in the coming years. I mean, I can't give away all my ideas, man. Just, just, <clears> one, gotta, just gotta, one more. We, just one we have more. To, we, have to save, we have to save some of them. Um, I, listen, I think that there's a lot around the idea of um, where apartments.com is going with unit level marketing. And we, we're going to need a lot more content around there. Um, one one that I think is really interesting is, and you know, I know that you have a great appreciation for really unique, compelling, powerful brands. I think that we are not even coming close to scratching the surface of really leveraging the power of brand in the community and what that means for things like merchandising, what that means for things like partnerships, what that means for things like um, content and revenue opportunities. We, are, we, we have not even touched uh, the surface of what we can do for that. And that's because we've, we've, we've made it so fragmented. Like all, you know, things like resident events have always fallen on the property manager to figure out. And, and they're not equipped to come up with you know, national partnerships and, and some of these, these ideas. But um, we're leaving a lot of money on the table. Yeah. Simp- very simply put, we are leaving a, yeah. a lot of money on the table as an industry that is not related to uh, raising rent. And um, you know, there's a lot of cool things that we can do to add value and deliver an experience that is completely unique to our brand and to our communities. And residents are willing to pay for it. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's it's been fun talking to you about these themes because again, we could talk about this <clears throat> for a long time. Um what I want to finish up with Mike is rapid fire questions. A couple here uh really quickly. The most exciting shift you have seen in multifamily since the pandemic. What do you feel like that is? I think it's the the the, the, the go back to what I said earlier about like the willingness to adopt technology and try new things. You know, we have clients right now that are uh, you know, they have 15 different prop tech pilots going on across their portfolio. And, and I think that that puts a lot of stress on their teams. You know, we, we, as an industry, we have to get a lot more um, serious about specialization of roles and what that looks like. Um, but I'm really excited about the fact that people are embracing this stuff and they're looking for it, um, that we're making hires from outside the industry. And, and bringing experts who can really help us, you know, help, uh, you know, help us change the face of the resident experience. Quickly, one book or maybe two that you would recommend to the listeners right now. Um, if you're in this industry, the one that my wife and I talk about the most that I think is really important to understand the history is The Color of Law. Um, the Color of Law is all about like, you know, the how segregation and how racism have affected housing policy over the past century. 
And it is, it is really fascinating to look at and to see, you know, things like redlining, things like mortgage, um, mortgage policies. There's just a, a lot there that you can see today exactly where, you know, our highway system was purposely designed to divide neighborhoods and communities yep. and, and keep people separate. And this book goes into it in depth and, you know, in terms of like um, impact. On, if you want to understand how we got to where we are today, it's a really, it's a really compelling read, and one that my wife and I talk about all the time. Um, the other one that I'll give you is not as deep. Um, if you are familiar with the guys at Base Camp, Jason Fried and um, David, David Hansen, um, they wrote a book. They wrote a number of books, but the one that I like the most is one called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And that is a, it's an easy read. It's light read. It's mostly just kind of like a bunch of little essays, but it's really thoughtful in how they think about businesses and how do you make things so that they are kind of calm and they don't have to be crazy. There's a lot of things in there. Um, the idea of the trust battery and making sure that your trust, your, your trust battery is always charged for me as a founder, as an owner, as, as somebody running a business, I, I think a lot about the weight of the owner's words and like, you know, mm. when I say something, sometimes I don't necessarily say, Hey, you need to go do this right away. But because it's coming from the president of the company, somebody will take it as like, Oh, this has to be super high priority. And so, you know, reading that book has really made me more thoughtful about, you know, the weight of my words as, as, as the boss and what does that mean? And how do I make sure that I am more clear in, in my direction and my communication? But uh, it's, it's a great, great, easy read uh, if you are looking for uh, a different way to think about how to organize your business. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing it. And for the listeners, we'll have complete show notes with links to these, uh, these titles, as well as all the links for Mike as well. Um, Mike, it's been a pleasure. We, uh, we, I feel like, again, we could talk forever. Um, if there's anybody for I sure. want to go along with on a podcast, it's you. So, so thank you for your time today. There's just one more thing to do. And that is to yeah. roll out that red carpet for you. Let the listeners know and the viewers know, uh, what you're up to these days and where they can find you online if they want to get in touch. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, 30 lines is our marketing technology studio. We have our creative services, agency services. If you need help with SEO or PPC or email marketing, which not enough people are doing, um, we can help with all of those things with 30 lines and that's 30 lines.com three zero lines.com. Um, our software platform is RentPress, and, uh, that's rentpress.io, and you'll find that there. And, um, anybody who's building, if, if, if you're looking for a new apartment website, um, first talk to Chris, but if you don't <laughs> talk to Chris um, and you, you, you find yourself talking to somebody who is building on WordPress, then we would be happy to help you out. There's a lot of cool things that we can do. Um, for me personally, um, probably the best place to find me is LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll have that link in the show notes. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Can't wait for part two sometime, right? Appreciate Absolutely. it. Thank you. Thanks, Chris.